All right, well, the title of this morning's sermon is on the screen, but it's Remembering Without Ceasing. Remembering Without Ceasing. And as I touched on it a little bit in my prayer, but as you think about different things that you can find satisfaction in, in this life, one of the things that came to my mind is Paul was remembering certain aspects about these believers. He was actually thanking God for them, but as he remembered them, it brought him great satisfaction. And he says, I've been remembering and meditating on, or I think about these things about you every time I pray for you or think about you. And as you think about satisfaction and what you could be satisfied, Paul was satisfied by seeing their spiritual health, their spiritual well-being. And as you think just about being satisfied in general, there's great joy and satisfaction in watching people fulfill their purpose, reach their potential, and effectively accomplish some mission or task that's in front of them. Now, that's especially true of people you're closest to. You think about how satisfying it is to watch people fulfill their purpose, reach their potential, effectively accomplish their mission or a a task in front of them. It's very satisfying if you care about people. As you see them succeed, that brings you great joy. You're grateful when this occurs. You're thankful when this occurs. And the more connected you are to that person, the more interested you are in that person, the more invested you are in those people, the greater the joy you experience. And you can think about various examples of that. If you have children that you're raising, that's probably one of the first examples that come to mind. If you're greatly interested, connected, and invested in them, it's going to bring you great joy to watch them, I'm just saying this generally now, fulfill their purpose, reach their potential, and effectively accomplish some task or mission that's in front of them. If you're close friends with somebody, talk about how this is more true or more often true or it's true to a greater extent if you are connected and interested and invested in people. Think about close friends and family. As you watch them accomplish a task or fulfill their mission or fulfill their purpose or reach their potential, this is something that brings great joy and satisfaction. If, you're, so if there's people in your life that you're, you're teaching or you're mentoring them or you're coaching them and, and you've been trying to help them and you see them, it finally clicks. They, they, they finally figure it out. That brings a sense of joy and satisfaction. Now, that's often true in the temporal or physical realm. This isn't something that's unique to people of faith. This is something that could be true of anyone who's connected, interested, or invested in somebody as they see them succeed at something or fulfill a purpose or maybe reach their potential, and this is all relatively speaking on human terms. But as, they, as you see that, it happens often that you would be satisfied or find joy in being able to watch that. And it perhaps happens more so in the physical realm than it does in the eternal realm. And as you think about the eternal realm, it should be true in the spiritual realm as we invest in people, have a concern for people, are connected to people, that we would be celebrating or find satisfaction or thanksgiving, have this sense of, I'm grateful to see you thriving accomplishing the, the mission, fulfilling your purpose, reaching your potential as it relates to the things of faith. There should be a greater joy associated with you observing that happen or occur in the lives of people that you're connected, invested, and interested in than to see them accomplish things in the physical realm. But why is, it, why is there a temptation, and there is, 
for people to be more focused and fixated on the success of people they care about in things that are not lasting or eternal anyway. You know, it's the kind of things that they're not wrong for you to be interested in. It's not wrong to celebrate or find joy or even be satisfied in watching children hit certain milestones. But why would our interest in those things and the amount of time we invest in the success of those things at times be greater than the amount of time we're investing in success in the spiritual realm? That's true in our own lives, but it's even true as we're investing in other people that we care about. We're spending all this time, all this time thinking about investing in helping with, assisting in, hoping that they'll have success in these things that are not lasting anyway. You know, these, these are just examples. Uh, I find this to be convicting for myself because as most of you know, I'm kind of a sports guy. I'm not good at sports, but I'm kind of a sports guy. And so, you know, I project that on my children to some extent, which I'm not saying is good. They have some level of interest in those things too, but there's certain things that you're really interested in them figuring out or being able to do well. And oftentimes you'll take and set aside all this time in your life to try to promote their success in that realm. And the tragedy would be is if I take stock of my time, my investment, and find that I've invested more time in that in that physical realm, temporal accomplishment in their life, meeting some milestone, figuring something out than I have in their spiritual well-being. Now think about your friends and your family, your children, your coworkers, those that you're mentoring, those that you're coaching. Think of the things that you're investing in, other people finding some success or accomplishing. You're trying to help with that. All good and noble, except for it's not more important than them thriving in their faith. Think about your closest relationships, whether it's a friend or it's a spouse. Maybe it's a child, somebody that you're really close to in an adult relationship now. Think about the time that you have together and then think about how much of that time is spent on trying to promote in one another a sense of spiritual well-being, spiritual growth, spiritual success. And I, the point of this is not that we would all leave here feeling like failures. In our own strength, we are failures. You don't have to think about that. You are. But through God's strength, He can fix that. He can give us direction that we lack. He can give us perspective that we lack. And He does want to challenge us and remind us and convict us to let Him make some changes in our priorities, to let Him make some changes in our lives. You see, Third John verse 4, it's, there's not chapters in Third John, but verse 4 says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. Now, substitute children for my friends walk in, tr- in truth. The kids that I'm invested in at work, the neighborhood kids that I'm spending time to invest in, I have no greater joy than to see or hear that they, my children, those I care about, that they're walking in truth. Insert spouse, insert best friend, and on and on you could go with that. I have no greater, that's the point I'm getting at. I'm not trying to tell you that none of those other things have any value. It's pretty great, you know, to watch your kid finally be able to make a basket or hit a baseball or if you set your standards lower, run without tripping, you know. 
it's great to watch them mature, but it's not greater than watching them mature in their faith. And so too often, believers celebrate or have this greater interest in physical success over the eternal realm. And in our passage today, Paul reinforces the kind of success believers should focus on and thank God for in the lives of fellow believers. As you think about other believers, this is the kind of success we should really focus on. This is the kind of success we should thank God is possible in this person's life. This is the kind of success that we should celebrate. And so if you haven't turned there already, let's take a look at Paul's prayer in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. And Lord willing, we're going to get through verses 2 through 10. Our focus is going to be on verses 2 through 4, but we'll try to touch on the rest of it because it sort of speaks to gives specific examples anyway of what Paul is talking about when he's, he's generalizing the spiritual success that he's heard about and seen in these believers. Let's just read this whole section. Paul's prayer starts with, we give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, labor of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of our God and Father, knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance, as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. And you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit. So that you became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believe. For from you the word of the Lord has sounded forth not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith toward God has gone out so that we do not need to say anything. For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Now, there's a tremendous amount here. We're not going to be able to go into all of it in great detail in the time that we have in front of us, but we're going to look at what we can here this morning. Now, this first section I said we're going to focus on, this is the gist of the prayer or the heart of his prayer and the rest of it is an explanation or just further detail it modifies what he has to say here in the last verses verses 5 through 10 and we'll go through that in more rapid fire but in verses 2 through 4 here we'll read this again we give thanks to God always for you all now making mention of you in our prayers so it's through prayer that we're giving thanks to God for you and we're doing that always now what are we specifically thanking God for we're remembering without ceasing three aspects of what we're remembering. Your work of faith, your labor of love, and patience of hope. And that comes from our hope in what? In our Lord Jesus Christ, in the sight of our God and Father. The other thing we're thankful for is knowing. So we remember, we're remembering and we're knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God. Those are the two primary things that we're giving thanks to God always for you all as we make mention of you in our prayer. Now that's the summary of what we're hoping to have you focus on, but there's a lot to dive into here this morning. We start for this with this section. We give thanks to God always for you all. 
Now this is the primary thought of this paragraph, and if you've been paying attention to this series, this is our 19th lesson here on different prayers of the Apostle Paul, this phrase or this similar phrase will stand out to you because we've already seen it before. Everything else in this prayer or this whole section actually modifies this primary thought. We give thanks to God always for you all. And so this represents another example of Paul's prayer or prayers of thanksgiving for fellow believers. And we looked at this previously actually in our first study in Paul's prayers in Romans 1.8 has similar language. First, he says, before anything else, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all. That, your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world, and here, the thing he's thankful for is that. We'll touch on that in a second. We touched, after that, we went to a prayer that said this, 1 Corinthians 1, 4 through 5, I thank my God always concerning you, and then he gets into what he's thankful for, for the grace of God which was given to you by Christ Jesus, that you were enriched in everything by him in all utterance and in all knowledge. What's interesting as you look at our passage here this morning, we give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, and then he's going to list remembering and knowing. So remembering these three things and knowing your election by God. So that's what he's specifically thankful for as it relates to this particular prayer about these particular believers in this particular place in Thessalonica. But how different was it he was, he was generally thankful for these different groups of believers everywhere, but the specific basis or stated basis of his thankfulness to God, it varied a little bit, right? So as we, as we look back here, I thank God that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. Now we're going to see that's very similar here to what he means when he says, without, we remember without ceasing what your work of faith and your labor of love, what, that, what did that involve? It involved having their faith spoken of throughout the whole world. There was no place, even outside of the region they lived in, that their, the gospel hadn't gone forth as a result of their desire to tell people about Jesus Christ. So there's a little bit of similarity, but it's also somewhat different. As we think about what Paul was thankful for as it related to the Corinthian believers, so that was the Roman believers. Here we have the Corinthian believers. He says, I was thankful that, for first of all, that you were given grace by God, who every believer should be thankful for God's grace, that God would treat us in grace, meaning that God would see us through undeserved, he would provide undeserved merit or undeserved favor to us, that he would see us through a lens of love even though we don't deserve it. He would give us God's riches at Christ's expense even though we were dead in trespasses and sin. There was none righteous, no, not one. We had all gone our own way. We were not seeking after God. We were God's enemies. We were, again, dead in trespasses and sins. We were described as being unjust and unrighteous. Despite all of that, God in his love would care for us enough anyway to make a way for us to be united, reconciled, redeemed to God. Not on the basis of anything we could do, but on the basis of what he would do for us through the person and work of his son, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ as Christ would die to pay our debt. That he would rise again to show that he was victorious, that he had fully satisfied the work that needed to be done, that the plan of God's rescue was successful, that it was completed in that sense. And you think about here, that's the first thing he's thankful for is the Corinthians, but he also says he's thankful that to God that they were enriched in everything by him in all utterance and knowledge, meaning that he's thankful that they were growing in their faith. Now, it's all really similar 
variations of the same thing, but I just, it's interesting that he uses different language and he highlights different things as it relates to these different groups of believers. It's also an interesting takeaway that there's all these different groups of believers that Paul has interacted with. And they're in a bunch of different places. And yet, consistently as we see the letters that he writes to these individual groups of believers, what do we see? We see he wants them to know, I'm not just writing this letter to you and then forgetting about you. I'm writing this letter to you to assist you, sometimes to deal with a problem I've heard about in your church. Sometimes I've never even met you and I want to just introduce myself to you and tell, me, tell you, even though I've never even seen your face, how thrilled I am that you've come to know the Lord, that you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ and that you're wanting to live lives that would bring him glory. Sometimes he's writing to say, I've heard about you and the moment I heard about you, I desired to come and see you. I want to meet you. So sometimes he's talking about those, but he's always wanting them to know, I've been thinking about you. I'm invested in you. I care about you. I'm concerned about you. Think about that. What, what, what more satisfying thing is there to know in life that somebody that people are actually concerned about you, that you're loved, that you're cared for. The thing every person on the planet is most desperately seeking is to be loved and cared for by someone. Even the tough guys out there that are saying, I don't need anyone to love me. I love myself plenty. No. <laughs> we want to be loved. We want somebody to care. And that's the beauty of Christianity is that it starts with God saying, I cared. I cared about you and I loved you so much that I would bankrupt heaven to rescue you from the predicament that you were in which was a hopeless and helpless and hellbound situation. It, it, you couldn't solve it, but I loved you that much anyway, even though you were not that attractive, you were not seeking after me, you were not so lovely, but yet I loved you anyway. And I accepted you fully even though I knew you fully. And if anybody else knew you fully, they wouldn't be able to love you because there's deceitfulness and desperate wickedness in you that is associated with the flesh or the sin nature. And that's true of us, even in terms of us talking about this a little bit with somebody on, on Wednesday, that's true of us even as believers. You know, on, on one hand, we have a new nature the Spirit of God now lives inside of us, gives us the opportunities, breaking the power that we were, the bondage we were into the sin nature has been broken. We're not under that same pervasive influence that we were before. We're not slaves to sin, but we're still influenced by that part of us, that residue of who we were in Adam that is always wanting to direct us away from the things of faith, direct us away from the Lord. You know, but God said, I'm gonna make a way for you to be rescued from that bondage that you were in. I'm going to break those bonds even though there's nothing particularly attractive about you. And so we think about, well, why would, why would God do that? God does that because he loves us so much. He takes interest in us. He cares about us. Now, if we are God's children and his spirit comes to live inside of us, then just follow the logic here. If God loved us so much, shouldn't we love one another that way, is what Christ says. 
if, if I loved you like this, and now my spirit is going to come to live inside of you such that I want to direct your thinking and direct your steps, direct your behavior, direct your words, your thoughts, I want to direct all of that. If I want to be the influencing factor in your life now, the spirit of life and godliness has given me what? Freedom over the law of sin and death. So as that spiritual battle was raging, I now have the capacity to trust God, to get my focus on Jesus Christ, the author and finisher of my faith, allow his spirit to give me victory over the law of sin and death as I place my dependence in that moment. They were talking about practical moment-by-moment dependence now here progressive sanctification, if you will, practical sanctification, as I put my focus on him, that God would say, I'm going to give you victory through my spirit, but I'm going to produce in you a way of life that is consistent with who I am. Now the life that God wants to produce in you is his kind of life. Well, what is his kind of life? What was it primarily focused on as it relates to the world? It's primarily focused on people. It demonstrated deep love and desire, a desperate interest in people. So you mean to tell me that when God is undertaking and working and directing in my life, when his spirit is driving the bus in my thinking, that he's going to produce in me an interest in people like Paul is talking about here, where it doesn't matter if he's met him or seen him, whether he's gone there before, he says, I'm thinking about you, I care about you, and I'm praying for you. That's how he views other believers that he's come into contact with no matter where they are. Now, think about the believers in your life. Are they all right here today, this morning? Are are they all located geographically right here on the Iron Range? Are they all even located in the state of Minnesota, in the country of the United States of America. The further out we go, maybe fewer and fewer of you have those connections. That's be normal. But do you think about, do you care about those people? How about when you haven't seen them for a while? Do you forget about them? We tend to. We tend to forget about the people who are right in front of us. If we're not careful, we can come out to church on the same morning, on the same Sunday, and not take any notice of each other. I mean, there's some value to looking around not to see what other people are wearing or if they got a haircut. But there's some value to looking around. Like, just be aware of your surroundings. Look around at who your family of faith entails. And when you're not spending any time with them or seeing them or checking in on them, how are they going to know that you have an interest in them? See, one of the ways Paul does that is he just tells them. Now, do you have to tell everybody everything? No. You could show them, too. You could show them that you have an interest in them. But if you don't show them or tell them, we call it show and tell, right? If you don't do that, how could they ever, how could they ever know that you have any interest in them? Now, the truth is, too often we don't. So there would be nothing to show and tell. We get so wrapped up in our own things we have so many things that we're holding on to that we just will not let go. We're probably right about most of the things that we're holding on to. Let's just even say that that's true. Now, honestly, I don't even believe that that's true. But let's think of all the things that you're holding on to that are stopping you from caring about, investing in, telling and showing people, other brothers and sisters in Christ, that you care about them the way that Paul is. What's stopping you? It's all these things that you haven't been able to let go of, that you're convinced you're right about. Let's say that you are. 
What, what was the value of being right if it caused you to be distanced from and separated from all the people that God says you're supposed to love the way he loves you? You can't in good conscience look, look heavenward and say, Lord, I am loving these people the way that you love these people, the way that you told me I should love these people, but I never think about them, never pray for them, never seek them out, never spend time with them, and frankly, don't give a rip about them most of the time. Now tell me that you are living life the way that God intended you to. All because you feel justified about some kind of a thing that you won't let go of. And that happened too much in my life. There's too many stories I could tell you about relationships and people that I distanced myself from and wouldn't invest in because I couldn't get over being right. They're going to have to admit they're wrong. They're going to have to change. What about you? God wants you to get your eyes on him. He wants to change you. He wants to leave the past behind in your life. He wants to change your thinking. He wants to transform your thinking. He doesn't want any roots of bitterness to spring up with you. He wants you to forgive others like he's forgiven you. He wants you to love people like, he's forgiven, like he loves you. There's no justification for it. You can go in circles over and over and over again trying to justify why it is that you're doing this, but there's no godly justification for it, period. That's a full stop right there. None. That's not God's will for your life. It's recorded on the pages of Scripture over and over and again. It's illustrated and given many examples of how that's not how we're supposed to deal with one another. Now, question. Is there ever a godly time to potentially distance yourself from somebody else, not seek somebody else out, not spend as much time with them, not, a, not be in a position where, and we touched on it, the answer is yes, and we touched on it on Wednesday night to some extent. The reality is that when your fellow believers, first, let's talk about unbelievers first. Does God want you to get so connected to people that you're now embracing, celebrating, affirming, and joining into their ungodly way of living? The answer is no. But can you preach the gospel and be a light for Jesus if you never come into contact with the world? And Paul says that in one of his letters. He says, no, that's not possible either. I wasn't telling you. When I said to avoid sexual immorality, when I told you to avoid idolatry, to avoid these things, I didn't say to avoid people. How could you tell them about Jesus Christ if you avoided them? You're to be among them in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation as lights so that they could see Jesus in you. So I didn't say that. I didn't mean that. I meant don't associate with their behavior don't partner with them in what they're doing as it relates to the ungodly behavior. That's as it deals with unbelievers. Now with believers, there's going to be a time where believers get so carnal or they're so fixated on they haven't put off the old man. They're currently living like they're lost. They're thinking like they're lost. They're, they're not thinking clearly and that, therefore they're not speaking clearly and they're not behaving clearly. Is that true of believers at times? Show of hands if that's you this morning. No. <laughs> we got a few brave people that raise their hand. That's true of all of us at times, right? And so then is there a place where somebody is struggling and they're, they're being a negative influence to themselves and to others where you might say, I'm going to pray for this person. I'm not going to cut this person out of my life completely, but I'm going to be discerning. 
about how much time and how much fellowship I'm going to have with somebody who is in a place where they are absolutely unwilling to consider the things of faith or let the Spirit of God produce some divine thinking or perspective in them at this moment. And Paul talks about there might come a time where you might have to say, there's a danger here in spending too much time with this person because they're, they're not in a place where they could positively uh, encourage me and in all likelihood, I'm going to become associated with their thinking and their behavior. It will seem as though I'm validating what they're doing if I go too far down that road. God's going to have to give you discernment about where that is. Uh, I generally try to err on the side of pursuing people but not necessarily maybe living a ton of life with people who are in that place where it's not going to be productive. If I spend time and they show some softness and they have some interest in talking about and working through and thinking about some of the things where their, their thinking and their attitudes and their, and their way of living is, is not what God wants for them, then yeah, that, that would be productive then. But it, when, it's, when they're not taking it in, they're not open to it, they're not willing to consider it, the best thing you can do for them is pray for them, not necessarily taint yourself with whatever perspective or mindset might be there. So I think that's, I think that's the biblical perspective on that that Paul was trying to bring out. I'm forgetting the passage. I think it's 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses starting around verse 11 or something like that, verses like 9 through 15. If I have that reference wrong, look it up yourself. What was the point here? point was Paul has that interest in people. You see it through these three examples. I almost gave a whole message here now on something that wasn't even in the notes. This, this is something, though, the Roman believers, the Corinthian believers, the Thessalonian believers, he says, I am interested in you. I'm thinking about you. I'm praying for you, and I thank God for you. Now, here's a little takeaway. Here we see an example of corporate prayer with the word we. He says, we give thanks to God always for you. This involves Silvanus, not, know if, not sure if I'm saying that right, Silvanus and Timothy, who is working with him. All three of them, he says, are praying. We give thanks to God always for you, making mention of you in our, there's another plural, prayers. See, there's a place for corporate prayer. Are we sitting down together and praying for other believers? These three guys, maybe more were involved in it, but they were doing that together, not just on their own. And then Paul again communicates his thankfulness for all the believers in this church. You see that we give thanks to God always for you all. And then that word always speaks to the frequency of these prayers. Now that's hyperbole. He's not saying every moment of every day that's what I'm praying for. Now he describes this thanksgiving as a part of their prayers. He says making mention of you in our prayers. So we're giving thanks to God always for you all. How are they doing that? As they're praying and talking to God. That's all it means. We're making mention of you in our prayers as, and it's a prayer of thanksgiving as we talk to God, we think about you. Now, thanking God for them, it represented one specific aspect of their prayers. The idea is we always thank God for all of you and pray for you constantly. Now, Paul, he wants them to know that others are praying for them because he knows the comfort that comes from knowing that other believers care enough about you to be praying for you and praying not just to anyone but praying to a God who cares himself for you and then not only that, praying to a God who cares for you because you care about them but praying to a God who both cares and is limitless. Does that provide you comfort? Does it comfort you to know others are praying for you? Not just praying to a wall, not praying to an idol who cannot hear, 
Praying to a God who loves you desperately, cares for you desperately, is good all of the time, and is infinite, is more than capable. He's able, that kind of a God. That's the God that your fellow believers praying to about your needs? That should provide you with comfort. We have a prayer list here at church. People request sometimes for themselves to be put on it. Sometimes they request for others to be put on it. But it's because there's a comfort that comes from the effective fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. And if we know that many righteous men and women are praying and bringing our concerns to the Lord, then he hears those prayers and he promises to answer those prayers and provide all that we need, even if it isn't answering that need in exactly the way that we think God should. There's a great comfort that comes from that. Now he says this, there's two specific things that make him thankful. The first one is he's remembering certain things about them, and then the other thing is he's knowing something about them. Remembering three things, and he's knowing one thing. These are the things that make me thankful specifically, and now we get into the specifics. He says first the remembering. It consists of these three components. We remember without ceasing, again, it's speaking to the frequency, it's again hyperbole. He's not, it, it couldn't be truly without ceasing per se. He's saying, every time we think about you, I want to communicate to you how dear you are to me and that's why I use this language. Without ceasing, every time I think of you, as I'm praying, I'm praying for all of these different believers including you. Okay, so what are the three things though, the three components that he's remembering that cause him to thank God? One is your work of love. Second is your labor of love. Your work of faith, sorry. Your labor of love and your patience of hope. Work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope. Let's start with work of faith. Now, work refers to any action, task, or undertaking associated with the mission of serving the Lord through service to others, both believers and unbelievers. So, any action, task, or undertaking that is associated with a walk of faith. Now, a walk of faith is fixated on the mission. The mission is to be racing or running toward an objective, towards a prize. But to run toward the prize is to accomplish the mission that God has assigned to us, which is to be lights, to be ambassadors for Jesus Christ. We preach Him. We preach Christ and Him crucified. That's the mission. It's not more complicated to that. So as we strive for the furtherance of the gospel together and we minister in love to one another, that's the work of faith. It's, worth, it's work that's brought about by faith, and we'll talk about that in a second. This word of here... It's an important word. We see it in all three phrases. It's the work of faith, the labor of love, and the patience of hope. Now, this word, it explains causation. It's best understood by substituting the word produced or prompted by. So work produced or prompted by faith, labor produced or prompted by, faith, by love, patience produced or prompted by hope. And, and take those three things away. They're, they're produced or prompted by the word that follows. Now, faith is identified as the underlying basis or motivations for these work of the ministry, these actions, tasks, and undertaking that are associated with serving the Lord by being willing to serve others in love. And so as you think about faith, that's the basis for this. Without faith, it is impossible to please Him. It starts and it ends with faith. Am I trusting God? I cannot live out a way of life that would involve the work of the ministry apart from presently trusting God. Now, of course, at a point in time in the past, I had to have put my trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ on my behalf as he died, was buried, and rose again for me. 
that he accomplished that for me. So as I trusted him with that, that's how I was now empowered by the Spirit of God, sealed by the Holy Spirit, made a part of God's family. I had to let go of everything else that I was trusting in, all my works, all my human efforts, all my church rituals, everything and anyone else that I thought could possibly save me. I had to turn away from everything else in a sense of that dependence that I had on those things, and I had to turn in faith to trust God and his solution to deal with my sinfulness that was perfected by Christ becoming sin for me, even though he knew no sin, so I could be made right with God or become the righteousness of God through faith in him. And as I did that, I was born into God's family. I was empowered by God's spirit. And I, I could live now, finally, for the first time, I could really live life in a way that would bring God glory and would be of benefit to me. Now, as I went about doing that in time, practically moment by moment, I had to trust God. I had to trust God to work in my life, to direct in my life, to empower my life. I couldn't be trusting myself. The way I got saved is the way that I lived the Christian life. I had to trust God in a moment-by-moment, day-by-day, decision-by-decision way so that God could work in my life to bring about or produce through me the work of the ministry that is said to be occasioned by, produced by, prompted by faith here, the work of faith. It took God doing that in and through me. Turn, if you will, to Ephesians chapter 2. The idea is here that you had work of ministry that was prompted or produced through your faith. This is God's plan for your life, that there would be ministry efforts, that there would be work, God's, God's purposes would be fulfilled through you in your life. It's not guaranteed. Your justification was guaranteed the moment you put your faith in the finished work of Christ. Your glorification was guaranteed that one day God will glorify you. But your sanctification, your, practi- your practical sanctification in time was not guaranteed. This is something that God desires for you, though, but you can resist him from accomplishing this in your life. You can quench the Spirit, in a sense, and prevent God from doing in and through you what he designed you for to begin with. You were made for this. So let's look at Ephesians chapter 2. Most of you are very familiar with this passage, especially the first two verses. For by grace, that means unmerited favor, you have been saved. Saved from what? A hell you deserve to a heaven you don't. Through what? Through faith, meaning to trust God, to be convinced, persuaded, to put your trust and dependence in what God has done for you. It's through faith in what God has done, though. It's not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. Gifts have to be freely given and freely received or they're not a gift. The only thing you can do in order to take in a gift is to receive it. You can't work for it. You can't earn it. You can't merit it. Not a true gift. It's grace. You don't deserve this. If you're not sure, he says in verse 9, it's not of works lest anyone would boast. Otherwise, people would be saying, I deserve to go to heaven. Heaven is a reward for good people. Heaven is an earned reward. It's not a free gift from God. It had had something to do with what God did for me, but the rest of it was something that I did to earn this versus everybody else who didn't deserve it. And we would go about thinking highly of ourselves, which in and of itself is a sin, one of the very things that was separating us from God to begin with. We keep going, though. The passage doesn't end there. It, It says... Now that we are God's children, he's writing this to believers. This is written to the church at Ephesus, written to believers. He's reminding them how they got saved. 
that it was their faith in Christ's finished work, his gift that he offered them through the sacrifice of his son, and it had nothing to do with them. He reminds them of that because he doesn't want any confusion to come in here. Now, verse 10, though, he says, for we, now that we are saved, we are his workmanship, where we, we were created in Christ Jesus for good works, meaning good things, meaning God's plan, God's purposes. That's what we were created for. And God, which God prepared beforehand, this was his plan. God had a plan in advance. That doesn't mean he forced his plan on us, but when we were saved, he wanted to bring us into, to utilize us to accomplish his plan and purposes. Now, he prepared this beforehand, these good works, that we should walk in them. Not that we will, not that we must, but that we should Walk in them, walk referring to what? A manner of living. That we should live in a way where God can produce his plan and purposes through our lives. Now, so many people, they believe that that's a condition of salvation. It's not. It's faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone. That's how you're saved. It's not of yourselves. The Titus says, Now, to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is come for righteousness. Not, a, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. That's, that's actually Titus. The other one was from Romans. But you have a plan. God has a purpose for your life. It's not to get saved and then just do your own thing, live for yourself. It's supposed to mean death to self and our life is now wrapped up in him, intertwined with him. That we that live, we would live not for ourselves, but for him who loved us and gave himself for us. That would involve this work of faith. Not produced through your strength, produced through his strength. Not to earn his favor, you already have it, but because you are his child, that your reasonable response would be, I love him because he first loved us, It's the love of God that compels me or constrains me. That's what motivates me to want to live in a way that would put the spotlight on him, to advance his cause, to advance his purposes. That involves the work of faith. Then we turn to the second phrase, the labor of love. Labor focuses on the effort involved in any endeavor or mission. So work involves in the mission and the tasks and associated with that underlying mission. But labor here focuses on the effort that's involved in fulfilling those tasks or fulfilling the work of faith. The toil, hardship, and trouble that accompany the work is the idea. And love is now given as the underlying basis or motivation for those efforts. So the idea is labor that's prompted or motivated by love. And this refers to God's kind of selfless and sacrificial love. The only efforts that please him are those motivated by love. Those are the only kind of efforts that please him. If you're doing it because you feel obligated to do it, if you're doing it because the pastor shamed me, guilted me, I feel like I have to earn God's favor, you don't got it at all. You're supposed to be motivated by love. Work that's a work produced by faith. Labor that's prompted or motivated by love. God's special kind of love. Now, if you don't believe me that that's supposed to be the emphasis for the undertakings, the tasks and actions that God is using or wanting to work through you, look at all these verses. 
this labor prompted by love. Galatians 5.13, for you, brethren, have been called to liberty. You have liberty, Christian liberty we're talking about here. Only do not use that liberty as an opportunity for your flesh. Don't do it just to indulge yourself. But through love, serve one another. The mentality of a Christian is supposed to be sacrificial and selfless love for the other people that God has put in your life. That's true if you're a husband, as it relates to your wife, and your wife or as it relates to you. That's true of you as it relates to your children. It's true of you as it relates to your fellow believers. It's true of you as it relates to the lost around you. That you're supposed to care more about them than you do about yourself. And that can only be prompted by God's special kind of love being produced in you by God's Spirit. We see another passage here, Romans 12, 10. Be kindly affectionate to one another with what? With brotherly love, familial love. In honor, giving preference to one another. You're saying that God's kind of love is deferential? It prefers others and defers to others? Yes, that's how God defines his kind of selfless and sacrificial love. That's the kind of love that should be prompting or motivating this labor uh, or this this labor that's tied to the work of faith that God wants to do in your life. Now here's another passage, 1 John 4, 10 through 11. In this is love. Now you want to know what love is. We didn't know what love was. We didn't know God's kind of love except for he showed it to us. This is love. Not that we loved God. We didn't. We were his enemies. We were alienated from him. We were not seeking him. We were not good. We were not wonderful. We were dead. We were absolutely everything that nobody would love, but God loved us anyway. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us. He loved us and he sent his son for God so loved the world that he gave, same, word, same idea there, he sent his only begotten son. He sent his son, why? Because we had a need that we couldn't solve on our own. So he sent his son to do what? To be the propitiation for our sins, the, the satisfying payment for our sins. Why? Because we had a debt we couldn't pay. And that debt was separation from God for all of eternity, death for sin. God couldn't be righteous and at the same time overlook sin, that, would, that characteristic of righteousness would actually interfere with his characteristic of being just. You couldn't be just and just ignore sin. You couldn't be righteous and let sin go. You couldn't be loving and just turn a blind eye to sin. See, all of God's characteristics and attributes have to work together. So God had to make a way because our sinfulness had separated us from God and his holiness. His justice demanded that We remain separated from him for all of eternity. His righteousness said that the reason that that's true, that sin had separated us, is because I set a standard of what was right and you violated that. But God in his love said, I don't want to see you leave, I don't want to leave you in a place where you're estranged from me. So I'm going to become the satisfying payment for your sins. What were the alternatives? Either you were going to have to die or a satisfying payment was going to have to be made where another person would die in your place. Those are the only two options. Thank God that his plan involved him providing a satisfying payment that could be a substitute for you and I, the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, who could take away the sin of the world, not just my sin, but all of the sin of the world, not just your sin, but every sin for every person for all time. Why? Because the value of his death was greater than the debt that was owed by all man's sin. That's why. So he became the propitiation for our sins. Now, this is the takeaway I'm getting at here as we talk about labor of love. Beloved, those that are loved by God, they're also loved by me. But if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. It's a labor that's prompted by love, not obligation, guilt, or shame. Now, Colossians 3.14 says a similar idea. This is to be motivated by love. But above all these things, he says, put on love. 
which is the bond of perfection. 1 Peter 4.8 has the last one we're going to look at. There's many more we could have. And above all things, Peter says, though, have fervent love for one another. For love will cover a multitude of sins. Some of us who are sitting here this morning, love hasn't been enough to cover a multitude of disagreements. And I've said that many times and I'll keep saying it. The number one thing tearing us apart is we have a difference of opinion we have a difference of perspective. We have different, a difference of priority, usually very nuanced. And love is, a love for one another isn't enough to cover that. And God's saying it should be my kind of love is enough to cover a multitude of sins. It was enough to cover all of your sin, and that's the kind of love I want you to have for one another. You can't even say that this disagreement or problem that you're having with a person even rises to the level of sin. In fact, as time goes by, the smaller and smaller you see the whole thing was to begin with. That's why God wants us to have short memories. He wants us to forgive. He wants us to forget. He wants us to not cling to things and hold on to things. He wants us to let them go. He wants us to rise above it and love people anyway, even when they don't deserve it, because that's how he showed us what love should look like. Now, how many people do we have here? We have three different primary authors of the New Testament. We have John, Peter, and Paul, who together wrote almost the entirety of the New Testament. They're all saying the same thing about love. So don't don't say that I'm making this up. This is something that God has said should be motivating our desire to serve Him and do the work of the ministry. It's brought about and sustained by our faith. But it's supposed to be motivated and prompted by our love for one another. And we get to the last phrase, patience of hope. These are the three things again that Paul is remembering as he's thanking God. Your work of faith, labor of love, now patience of hope. Patience refers to steadfastness and endurance. Most of you wouldn't get that. It's not normal. This isn't normal language. That word patience doesn't mean what it means. We think about patience. We think about we're not getting riled up too quick. So it's, it's a fine translation other than it doesn't mean what it used to mean. The actual word the actual Greek word means steadfastness and endurance. It's found in most, most every other translation has either steadfastness or endurance. It's talking about endurance that's brought about or prompted by hope. You talk about steadfastness, it's almost always, and especially here, it's referring to the steadfastness being unmovable, unshakable is what he's talking about. It's, it's being unmoving in the faith despite what? Despite persecutions, despite suffering, despite adversity, despite people not treating us like we want to be treated. Steadfastness. I'm not going to be shaken by that. I'm not going to be moved by that. So you think about you think about God's way of describing that steadfastness. You'll see later on that they were facing persecutions that we never have. They were facing tribulations and suffering such as we've never experienced. We've experienced maybe glimmers of it. So he's saying, Paul's saying, I'm thanking God for your steadfastness that's prompted by the hope that you have. Now let's talk about hope. Faith, when you think about hope, it refers to a confident expectation regarding the fulfillment of God's promises, God's word or God's promises, which ultimately boils down to a confidence in God when you think about it. It's a confident expectation regarding God's promises, which means I'm confident in God. Specifically, I'm confident in God's faithfulness. So as I'm confident in God's faithfulness, 
That's what can give me steadfastness. That can, that's what can allow me to stay unmovable in the face of persecution, suffering, and adversity. So you have the steadfastness that is occasioned or prompted or made possible due to hope that you have in the faithfulness of your God. That's the only thing that's going to keep you steadfast, friends. Think about all the things that shake you. It's only reflecting on and focusing on your God, how good He is, how faithful He is, how present He is, how powerful He is. That's what's going to help you to not be shaken by the trials and adversities and hardships that come along in life. And life is hard. It's not hard compared to what other, some other people have gone through maybe. Some of it's relative. Sometimes if we really thought about it, we'd say, man, my life's pretty good compared to, uh, say, say for example, being dragged out of your house and burned alive, you know. Some of these early Christians face things that you would never, never could even imagine. It would bring you to tears to instantly think that you and your family, that was happening to. But look at this. Work of faith, labor of love, patience of hope. What do we have there? Faith, hope, and love. They're the enduring positive emotions that God wants to use in your life to motivate a way of thinking and living that pleases Him. Doesn't that make you think about 1 Corinthians 13, 13? As he's talking about the importance of love and that if you have faith without love, you have nothing. That everything needs to be under the umbrella of love. But let's just talk about how he, he says these are the three enduring. He says certain things are going to pass away that were beneficial. But these are the things that you'll always have. He says, and now... Some of these things have passed away, but now abide, what? Abide faith, hope, and love. These three. And he says the greatest of these is love. Well, we move on to the second reason for Paul's thankfulness that he's expressing his thankfulness on, on his part. We have knowing your election by God. Knowing your election by God. We give thanks to God always for you making mention of you in our prayers. We were remembering these three things and now we're knowing we're knowing your election by God and he calls them beloved brethren. That's the second thing that we're thanking God for. Now, this is all one sentence, starting in verse two. This is all connected. These are two different things that when, they, when they're praying about these believers, these three, Silvanus, Timothy, and Paul, they're praying not only and thankful not only about remembering how God's working in their lives, but also they're focused on the fact that these are believers, that they know that they're believers, and we'll explain that. See, knowing means to be aware of something. As you see, this beloved brethren refers to fellow believers who God loves. You're loved by God. Paul obviously loves them too, so they're beloved to him, but more important than that, they're beloved by God. Now you see this, knowing these beloved brethren of your election by God. It refers to God's choice to place every believer into identification with Christ in one body or group with one shared mission to fulfill his purposes. God elected, God chose. God chose, he planned to place everybody who would believe into this one body, this, this one group, all identified with Jesus Christ. He chose to put us in Christ. That's primarily what it means to, 
in terms of election or choice, but he chose to put us in Christ, but that meant to be in the body of Christ, in the family of Christ, the church of Christ, into one body or group that was made up of many different people, but who were all saved, who had all put their faith in the finished work of Christ, and he gave that whole group one specific mission to fulfill, a plan, a purpose, a shared mission or purpose. And he says, we thank God that we know that you're a part of this. We know that you're a part of this. And there's many people who misunderstand what election is all about, what it actually refers to. See, election by God is a corporate fact which applies to the body of believers. Every person is a candidate for salvation because they are a sinner, not because they were elected or pre-selected by God individually. So that's where a lot of people who are in a camp of Calvinism, that's where they get this wrong. God didn't pre-select certain people to be saved. That's not what it means to be elect. To be elect is to be a part of an elected group, a called out group a called-out group of people that have a specific task or purpose. When you see the use of the word called-out or elect as it relates to the Bible, it's talking primarily about called-out groups, mainly the nation of Israel and mainly the church. And people that collectively are a part of that group through faith or identification with Jesus Christ. That God chose to place everybody who would believe in Christ. So that, in a sense, you would come to a decision to make about Jesus Christ. You would come to the front of the you know, the door to the cross, the foot of the cross, so to speak, this is all metaphorically. But as you come to this decision about are you going to accept or reject the finished work of Jesus Christ? So you have a door, you have to make a decision. Am I going to accept this? Am I going to trust this? Am I going to walk through this, so to speak? Step out by faith through this door or not? And, and above that door, it's saying all who will come and drink, drink freely. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. I am the door by me. If anyone enters in, he shall be saved. Here's a decision and it's available to all. Christ said, I'm not willing that any should perish. I came to seek and save all that were lost. I would that you would come to me, he says to the Pharisees even, but you will not. Not you could not, or you weren't selected for salvation, or you weren't gifted for faith, but you would not come to faith. You have a personal responsibility in this. Now is God facilitating and undertaking and drawing you? And is, is, is he involved in this through his grace and love? Yes, but the decision is yours. He's not forcing himself on anyone. You have to make a choice. And so all who will come and drink freely. Now when you make that decision to put your faith in Jesus Christ, you effectively walk through that door and you walk into something. You become a part of something. You now walk into identification with Jesus Christ. You're now placed in Christ. And Ephesians talks about that at length. How you're now in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. Your identity has changed. You're no longer in Adam anymore, but now you've become identified with placed into Christ. Why? Because God put you there? No. Because you accepted the finished work of Jesus Christ on your behalf as he died, was buried, and rose again for you. That moment, you were now identified with the death of Christ. His righteousness clothed you. His righteousness was imputed to you, credited to your account. You're now in a right standing with God on the basis of your identification and association with Jesus Christ. He doesn't see you in your sin anymore. Your sin was placed on Christ. You were wrapped and clothed in the righteousness of God. So now God can look at you as you're now in Christ. You're now a part of a body of believers 
the bride of Christ, a part of this organization, all of whom, no matter who they are, are now in Christ with a similar standing, a similar purpose, and a similar mission. So if you look back at the door that you just walked through, it would say, chosen in him. You're chosen in him. He chose to save everybody who would put their faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ on their behalf. So some people say the reason that you are able to be saved or you're a candidate for salvation is because you were chosen by God. You were picked out from the mass of humanity. That God looked down at all the people that would ever exist and he said, hmm, eh, that one looks good. I'll pick this one and that one. And he, for what, however he did it, he chose a certain select ones and he gifted them the ability to have faith because they were chosen, that it was irresistible, that they had no way to resist it. He chose them and he, he made them saved effectively. That doesn't line up with the God of the Bible at all. There would be nothing, to do that would mean that he chose everybody else for damnation. That they had no ability to even respond to his love even though he says he loved the whole world. I love the whole world, but you have, no even, you have no capacity even for responding to that love and accepting my gift that I'm offering, he says, to everybody, all who will come and drink freely. Doesn't even make sense. The reason you're a candidate for salvation is because you're a sinner like everyone else on planet Earth. Every single person was identified with their sinful choices which alienated them for God and made them a candidate now for rescue. You're a candidate for rescue because you're hopeless unless somebody were to come and solve the problem that you could never solve on your own. The only way you can become a part of this collective body is through faith. So what is Paul really doing here? Paul is thanking God for the Thessalonians because he was confident they were a part of the body of Christ. They were believers. That's what he says when he says, I know that you're of your election by God, that you're a part of this, that you got in on this. Now, how could he have this confidence or assurance? Now, look at your Bibles. I'm going to put some of it up here. We're going to rapid fire through this. This is what verses 5 through 10 are about. But as you look at the progression that Paul lays out, it makes it really clear that the reason they're in on this is because they heard the gospel and they responded to the gospel in faith, not because they were pre-selected for salvation. What happens in verse 5? The gospel is first preached with boldness or power, supernatural assistance through the Holy Spirit, and conviction or assurance. You see that in verse 5. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power, meaning it was boldly proclaimed to them, and in the Holy Spirit, meaning there was supernatural assistance in this process. As the Spirit of God is drawing men to himself, he's empowering the laborers so that they can speak with power and they can speak with conviction to those who need to be saved. And it says, and it came with conviction or assurance, meaning we spoke very confidently as we communicated this message to you. Paul and his fellow missionaries also reinforced their message through testimonies and they practiced what they, their testimonies and they practiced what they preached. Look how the end of verse 5 says, as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake, meaning you took our message to be genuine and authentic because we lived in a way that was consistent with what we were preaching. We didn't undermine our message through our life, our life choices, through living in a way that was incompatible with what we were preaching. 
Then you move on to verse 6. These believers responded to the gospel message in faith by receiving the word and then following the example of Paul and ultimately the Lord with joy despite the trials and opposition that they faced. You see that, and you became followers. What does that imply? They put their trust, they accepted this message, they put their faith in Jesus Christ. You became followers of us and of the Lord. How did you do that? You received the word despite this affliction that you were facing. You trusted the truth. You, you responded to the truth. You accepted it. That's what it means to receive a gift. You received it. You received the truth. Even though you were facing a lot of affliction and you did so, with joy that was made possible by the Holy Spirit. Then what happened? Then they became spiritual examples to other believers in the region. So that you became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believe. How did they get in on it? These other people? They believed. How did the Thessalonian believers get in on it? They believed in the message, the truth that was presented to them. It wasn't that they were gifted for salvation. They believed in the message that was presented to them by the Apostle Paul that was the truth of God's plan of redemption. Then verse 8 here, we see that this included proclaiming the gospel to others far and wide. He says, For from you the word of the Lord has sounded forth not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith toward God has gone out so that we do not need to say anything. How awesome. As they responded in faith, other people got saved because they proclaimed this message. For from you, the word of the Lord has sounded forth. Remember, we're a spokesperson for God. It's not our message, it's his message. We're just faithful to be ambassadors to proclaim God's truth. Now, their message to others included the backstory of how they learned the truth from Paul and how they had to turn away from idols in order to put their faith in Jesus Christ. And it says, for they themselves, these people that Paul's been hearing from, they declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you. Meaning these Thessalonian believers, as they were talking to other people, they were telling about how they got saved through the ministry of Paul. And then those people were telling that back to Paul. And then he says they also were telling these people how they turned to God from idols. You see, salvation always involves turning to God. The focus isn't on what you're turning away from, but naturally if you're turning to God, you have to turn away from something. In this case, it's idols, meaning another God, something else that you're trusting or depending on besides the finished work of Jesus Christ. So they turned to God from idols, and now they serve the living and true God. Then we see in verse 10, these believers also taught new converts to eagerly await the resurrected Christ's return who would provide deliverance from God's future wrath. What a way to end. They taught them about how they had gotten saved by turning to God from idols, how they now were serving the living and true God, and how they were waiting with this eager expectation for the return of Jesus Christ. The same Jesus Christ who was raised from the dead by God the Father, and the same Jesus who had provided deliverance both from the penalty of sin in the past but also from the wrath to come, forward-looking the wrath of God that abides on all of those who have not accepted Jesus Christ. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Now, as you think about this, it, severely, it, it clearly proves that the way a person is saved is to hear the gospel proclaimed, to respond to the gospel in faith by accepting what God says is true, to believe the gospel. And then God wants to work in our lives so that we would have this impact on other people. Now, while specific eternal, external responses to the gospel message are not required for salvation, you don't do these things to prove that you're saved. They do, though, 
provide others with some evidence or assurance or confidence regarding your internal faith. That's what Paul's saying about knowing that you're a part of this, knowing that of your election by God, that you're part of this in Christ family of God. I know that you're part of that. In part, though, he has that confidence because he's seen how God is working in their lives. Isn't it true that when you see other believers living for the Lord, you have no way of knowing for sure what's motivating that? They could be doing it through their flesh, through their own strength. But often for long enough, if you spend time with them, kind of people are transparent to some extent. They don't fake it very well. So sometimes if you're with people long enough, you can see that's genuine. I, I can see the authenticity in your attitude and your perspective about Jesus Christ. And that gives me confidence or assurance, not that it's my role to be the judge of your salvation, but it does give me confidence that you get this because I can see God working in your life. There's value to it in terms of not to be justified before God, but to be justified before man so that others could see Christ in you, that it would actually have that effect. So we have remembering without ceasing. This is one of the two things that Paul's thankful for, remembering without ceasing and knowing that they're a part of that, that, that they're saved, that they're part of the family of God. There's great joy and satisfaction in watching people be successful, the spiritual success. Paul is enthusiastically celebrating the spiritual success of his fellow believers. He, he frequently, along with his companions, thanked God and continually remembered or considered their spiritual success. He also remembered that with confidence their salvation as he saw even all this outflow of their desire to serve the Lord in their lives. But he was celebrating the work that was prompted by faith, the labor that was prompted by love, the endurance that was prompted by hope in their lives. Those are the kinds of things that should make you grateful to God as it relates to fellow believers. They're not always the things that we're grateful or thankful for because often we're not grateful or thankful at all. At all. But when we are, those are the kinds of things we should be grateful for. And I hope you take that away from this lesson. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your time. This time we could spend in your word. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your provision of a life that would have purpose and meaning. Thank you that you made a way for us to take ourselves out of the equation completely and that you made a way to, for us to live life in dependence on you as empowered by you and directed by you so we could leave, live lives that other people could celebrate and thank God for. We could live lives that would bring you glory and benefit us in time and also benefit others as you work in and through us to impact the people that you bring us into proximity with. Pray that we would have hearts that want to do that and that we would celebrate it when we see and be thankful to you when we see those things happening in other believers that you have placed in our life. Thank you again in Jesus' name. Amen.